I mean to say that subsequently to the period when Lygia's beauty passed into my spirit, their dwelling as in a shrine, I derived from many existences in the material world. Greetings, Poe fans. I am Carmen Bolden. And I'm Jeannie Smith. And we, and we are the, the Potastic Two. Welcome back to October. Yes, and it's a fantastic October so far. Because the weather seems to be in Tennessee catching up to somewhat of an autumn level. We're not yes. the you know, blazing side of the sun, I knock on wood. So, Yes, and I just came back into Tennessee from, I guess you could say, flying back like a raven uh-huh. <laughs> from the Poe Fest in Baltimore last weekend and was able to celebrate Poe, well, I guess memorialize Poe's death on October 7th at like right in front of his house. No, oh, that's crazy. Yeah, I know. I, I did I didn't show up. Yeah, no, we, we didn't get to go to his grave and visit. However, I, you know, I've been there multiple times, but we did drive by it a couple times because mm-hmm. of the route we took. So that was pretty cool. Yeah. I mean, hey, you were there, you got to bask in his spirit being in where he died. So that's always good. Absolutely. And uh, the, the Poe Fest this year was amazing. They've expanded it. And so, you know, if you, if you're in that area or can travel to that area, definitely go next year in 2024. Absolutely. And we'll see you there. You can always spot us. That's right. <laughs> the circling ravens. Yes, 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 yes. So, Jeannie, mm-hmm. what is on tap for tonight? Well, considering it is the month of October and there's a lot goes on in the month of October, one thing, as we were discussing, is poor Poe, he met his demise in the month of October under rather mysterious circumstances, so many so many different myths around how he truly died, but we do know that he did die on October the 7th. Correct. But he was found in an unconscious state on the 3rd. Yes. And then it took till the 7th before he finally just gave it up and, and left this earthly plane. Right. But that's in October that we always love is Halloween. And with Halloween, everybody wants to try to scare everybody to death and and all the horror. And then you, that automatically makes you think of, you know, the horror movies. Well, something else that's happening in the month of October is Friday the 13th. Yes, and, and that's unusual yeah, for that to be in the same month. Exactly. So it's all kind of coming together in a trifecta. Uh, there's also going to be a solar eclipse this month. So it's rather synergy. Synergy seems to be going on. But the one thing this all runs down to with Halloween, Friday the 13th, because Friday the 13th was a very prevalent horror franchise that came into the industry. Mm-hmm. And the things that we're going to talk about is horror. And one of the most uh, prominent fathers of horror, and especially for the film, is good old Alfred Hitchcock. Yes. Dun, dun. And we're going psycho as we're doing that. 
Which that's the other thing. We, we definitely live in the world of psychotics. Because, you know, and who uh, who better to match up with Psycho than good old Edgar Allan Poe? Absolutely. With the psychology and mixing in with Hitchcock and the influences that Poe had on Hitchcock, which is really cool. And so, what? Also, well, one of the things I wanted to bring up that's ironic, it was 90 years after Poe's birth that Alfred Hitchcock was born. That's true. Yeah, because yeah, let's kind of talk about and give the give our listeners a little, a little yeah. Alfred Hitchcock. Most people yeah. don't know about Alfred Hitchcock other than oh, he did Psycho and Rear Window. Yeah, and well, I almost think I mean most Hitchcockian fans definitely know Rear Window, but I th to me I think Psycho and The Birds are probably the most known. I, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah, no, probably not everybody knows about Real Window because you definitely have to be more of a Hitchcock fan to follow. Yeah. That. But yeah, yeah Psycho or, definitely. Or like Burton, a, absolutely. Yeah, or like a Jimmy Stewart or a Grace Kelly fan. Exactly. Yeah, That's so, yeah, so just like Jenny was saying, Hitchcock was born on August 13th, 1899. However, that was not a Friday the 13th. Jeannie, look that up. Yeah, I looked it up. However, one of the cool things about it, though, that I found that if he had lived to 1999, his 100th birthday would have fallen on a Friday the 13th. That's cool. That's really cool. And what's really unusual is that his very first film that he ever did was mm -hmm. It never, it never got off the, you know, way or anything like that. Never made it popular. It bombed, so it never did anything. But yeah, he filmed a movie called Thirteen. Interesting. Yeah. So okay, go ahead. You. <clears throat> oh yes. Yeah. Okay. The biography of who Alfred Hitchcock was. Yes, and so um, he was born in late. Leytonstone, England. Leytonstone, England. Try to do a little British there. Um, yep. He was the youngest of the children of William and Emma Jane Hitchcock. And so he had um, a couple of older siblings. And he really, you know, he had a pretty happy childhood. And mm -hmm. he, when he was 15, he attended um, a school that was more like technical for becoming a draftsman. Um, some, some of his first jobs were in advertising and that's where he kind of got his connection to go into work on film and believe it or not, he actually did some writing for a magazine. Did you run across that in your research? Well, no, I didn't go delving that because I've been mostly looking at his, uh, things that he was known for with production, whether it be silent films or some of right. the films. So okay. I didn't but yeah, you go for it. Yeah. So um, when he was in doing his advertising work, he was a founding editor of the Henley Telegraph, which was a magazine that produced short pieces, you know, like little short stories, poems, mm -hmm. advertisements and things like that. Some of the first writing that he did as a contributor for this magazine 
was called Gas, and the first issue was in June of 1919. And this little short story, a dramatic piece with, you know, a touch of dark humor, which sounds very Poe-esque if you really think about it, right. um, to, with like Poe's satire. He published this in the magazine, and it, it basically is about a kind of a dreamlike horrific experience of a woman having her teeth worked on. So mm -hmm. I thought that was really very interesting. Yeah, it's really interesting. One of the one of the things that we were discussing earlier about a crossover is that the women in Hitchcock's movies are, you know, very prominent and situated as characters that kind of push the storyline. So if we jump into Edgar Allan Poe, he had the same thing in his stories that, you know, some of them that we know there was narrators. The narrators could have been male or female. Right. But we know that a lot of Poe's influences were women in his life. Yeah. So that that crossover, in my opinion, between the personalities of the two. Yeah. And um, in one of the books about Hitchcock called The Dark Side of Genius, um, mm -hmm. Donald Spotto was the author this is what he said of this story, Gas. He found the story a sophomoric Poe imitation, plainly ev evidencing the Hitchcockian images of sadism. So I thought that was really interesting. Well, yeah. I mean, a lot of the critics seem to be um, throughout generations similar in their in interpretation of certain people. So... I can see them marking Hitchcock along with Poe and not being very much fans of his. Mm -hmm. That's okay. They didn't but, need but, but didn't uh, Yeah. And I mean, and when you think about it, that was his first piece that he published. And so, you know, all writers have to grow. And so mm -hmm. saying it's sophomoric, you know, you almost have to give him a little time to, gain his let's, yeah you know because a lot of them especially when it comes to writing or storytelling or filmmaking doesn't mean that everyone that you do the very first one you do is going to be a blockbuster hit or going that's to be, right that's right you don't ever want whatever you do the very first one to be the most notorious because that means that anything that comes after it, you're going to have a very high bar to try to reach. Yeah. Um, another, like later that year in the magazine in September of 1919, he published a story called the woman's part. And what's really very interesting about this is that idea within an idea of the structure of the whole story kind of came about. And it's almost like a story within a story, very allegorical, and so when you think about it, you've got several things that can kind of connect Poe or maybe, you know, there's nothing that I could find that showed how much Hitchcock read of Poe. But when right. you think about the idea within an idea, you've got the poem dream within a dream. You've mm -hmm. got that allegorical part of the fall of the house of Usher. You've got the haunted palace, you know, woven yeah. into the story. And so it's just very, very interesting that 
Hitchcock did this in his writing. And so you really kind of wonder how much, you know, how much of Poe did he really, really was there an influence? And I know we're going to talk a lot about more about the films in just a minute, but one of the things I wanted to read was a quote that Hitchcock um, actually said about his influence um, from Poe. And that goes as this. He also came under the influence of Edgar Allan Poe, who told, and this is in Hitchcock words, mm-hmm. a completely unbelievable story to the readers with such a spellbinding logic that you get the impression that the same thing could happen to you tomorrow. And I know that was not Hitchcockian, but if my voice was a little bit better tonight, I could have done it a whole lot better, like the good evening. Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. But anyway, I'll read that again because I think that came out horribly. He also came under the influence of Edgar Allan Poe, who told a completely unbelievable story to the readers with such a spellbinding logic that you get the impression that the same thing could happen to you tomorrow. So it's almost like the reality of what Poe wrote, what Alfred Hitchcock's producing in film is like the everyday man, the man in the crowd. Yeah. And that's the thing. I mean, because you have to look at it also from the aspect of two different mediums. Yeah. Because Hitchcock wasn't writing his stories. Right. Stories that he made into movies weren't something that he wrote. Yeah. These were... These were novels or short or stories that someone else had written, and he just turned them into screenwrite. Exactly into screenwrite. Yeah. So he was more on the visionary side of making it, rather leaving it to the imagination. In a book, he was putting that imagination into life. Right. And I think he chose some very well known storylines. Absolutely. You know, it could happen. And what's so even even strange, in my opinion, is that the ones that he did, like the birds, for instance. Yeah. Uh, when we were going through the pandemic in 2020 and everyone was being sequestered all over the world and not going outside as much, it seemed like the animals were trying to take back. And there was a lot more that came about. You know, we had dolphins showing up in in areas that they'd never shown up for we had whales coming out places we had birds that were flying to different areas so that always brought me back to the birds when i thought about it i'm like well you know nature attacking and one thing that many people don't understand about the birds is the birds take their flight and they fly based on the electromagnetic magnetic pulse of the earth Right. You know, that atmospheric bubble that we're in is what allows birds to have their GPS, basically. Yeah. (laughs) Why? So anything that interrupts that, that's why we have sometimes we see birds just fall out of the sky. Right. And you and it's like, okay, so things like that can happen. And so when he made these movies, it was like, oh, wow, never really thought about that. Because most of the times when we watch movies nowadays, they're so out there that we're like, that's never going to happen to me. Right. Well, like you said, Hitchcock made it to where 
this is going to be an everyday occurrence kind of thing, something that can happen. Yeah. And, you know, when Hitchcock made film, the, there was no CGI and he had to create oh, yes. these things out of what was available and the, the trick of the camera and things like that. And mm -hmm. he, I can't remember the gentleman's name, but um, in the, the one book I'm reading, it's called Alfred Hitchcock, a life in darkness and light by Patrick McGilligan. And it's an excellent mm -hmm. book. Um, it's just, it's a very large book. And so I haven't had time to read the whole thing yet. However, he Hitchcock was very dedicated to having the same people working with him to make sure that they could create what they needed to create. And, um, and we just want to add in before we forget this month, October, 2023 marks the 60th anniversary of the movie, the birds. And so mm -hmm. check your listings because in some theaters, they are showing the birds. So go, mm -hmm. go check it out. If you haven't, it's excellent. And it's actually a story by Daphne du Maurier and it's loosely based on that, that book and or story, but it's great. The story is great too. If you read it and then watch the birds. Yeah, exactly. And like some of these that you will find that when they talk about Hitchcock and his filmography. Yeah. Days that when he came from silent films. Right. And there was no talking. There was just moving pictures, black yeah. and white, nothing. But then all of a sudden he had to go into this type of thing. But one of the things that made him so good at his job was that he used full orchestra soundtracks. Yes. And he would find innovative, dynamic methods for shooting everything. Like he would make sure that he shot 20 different angles of a staircase, just a standard staircase. Right. And he presented in 20 different angles and then he would put them together and it would create like this total 4D dimension. Yeah. Staircase that you would like, whoa you know why what but that's what we were talking about he didn't have cgi he didn't have all these major um computer graphics technology to help him he had to create it using what he had and that included special effects that were people putting together fireworks you know right. explosions or it was the people in the background making the heavy steps or you know, shooting a gun, a real life gun in the background just to give it that, you know, vision. Yeah, so, well, in reality. <clears throat> yeah, in reality. So it just always, it always amazes me that he could use the visualization of what he was reading, what he read and turn it into something that was so phenomenal. Even though he started out in black and white and then it went into color, but even when it went into color, he still didn't. It was simplification is what I'm getting to. Right. Yes. His major successes was simplification. And that's why I tie him a lot into Poe. And I think he was influenced with Poe because of the people when he was growing up were influenced with Poe. Right. Because you can't tell me that Orson Welles and um, I think Ray Bradbury was in that time. Yeah. You know, yeah. No, he's Ray Bradbury's after. Little yeah, after. Ray Bradbury. Yeah, little after that. But no, I mean, Agatha Christie, that's who I was thinking of. Yeah. And um, all of those that were being influenced 
H um, H G Wells. That was the other one. They had been influenced by Poe. They couldn't help but be. Yeah, and, and well, if you think about it, um, Hitchcock was born fifty years after Poe died. I mean, that's exactly. not that much time. No, I mean, and albeit history wise, a lot of things happened in America in those fifty years. But he was born in London. Right. He became an American phenomenon. <laughs> in my opinion, because he shot American films. Absolutely. I mean, and, you know, he definitely was, you know, shooting all his films in England before, mm -hmm. you know, coming over to Hollywood. But he, it, it's very interesting. His first talkie was 1929 and the movie was Blackmail. Mm -hmm. And he did not want to go into talking movies because mm. the words got in the way. Yes. Which I thought was very interesting, but you know, Jeannie and I were talking about this, you know, off camera before uh -huh. we uh, talk tonight, you give up control when yep. you're having to depend on somebody else remembering their lines. And mm -hmm. when he was in control of just the picture, he had the ultimate control. And so I can see where that would be scary you know, what if the actor you want doesn't have the voice you want? <laughs> exactly. They may have the look, but they don't have the voice. Now, right. Or the memorization power. <laughs> yes. In some instances that a lot of people, they use the, the picture of the actor or actress, but then they yeah. do overs in modern times. Like if they don't have the right voice and even body doubles, they've done body doubles, but I can see where Hitchcock being a man who, started out in silent films where it was just all about showing someone something and them having to interpret it without having words. Yeah. <laughs> kind of the exact flip from Edgar Allan Poe. Yeah. Edgar Allan Poe was writing the words and building the, the, the pictures in the reader's mind as they were reading the words Hitchcock was using the visual of the people's body language because most people, you know, body language is a language. Right. A lot it's of huge. It's huge. It's really huge. <clears throat> so he was using that body language and those those moments, those situations to tell the story. Yeah. And so he was doing the exact same thing Poe was doing, but the opposite way. Right. And he was so very good at it. And I can see why he was like, oh, great. Now i got to put up with people talking. <laughs> exactly. Well, and then another thing, too, that that was an influence for Hitchcock, you know, that it's very similar to Poe, was he married Alma Reville in 1926 and mm -hmm. she was his assistant director. She had a very large hand in his early films working with him. And, you know, he always considered her part of the team and mm -hmm. held very respectfully, very highly in regard to her knowledge of making a good picture. But then in 1928, they had their one and only child, a daughter. Um, you know, she goes by Pat, but Patricia who was in several of the Hitchcock films and on the Hitchcock uh, presents and the Alfred, Alfred Hitchcock hour. But once Pat came along, she kind of stepped out of the, on the, you know, the, the stage, you know, the, the sound stage or, you know, where they're filming. She yeah. wasn't as prominent, 
working with him day by day after their daughter was born. Yeah, because she was having to split her time basically right. between being a mother and being, you know, the right hand of Albert Hitchcock. Right, right. Um, but that sometimes would happen. Oh, absolutely. Um, especially for anyone in that type of field in that earlier years. Yeah. But what's so ironic is that most of the major films uh, that Hitchcock did, kind of like with Poe and his stories, they had such a woman influence, like his own wife in real life. But some of them were so psychologically damaged, in my opinion. By yeah. Women, or they were pushed to the limit. Like so many of them, they're trying to kill the women. Yeah. <laughs> You know, they, they're trying to kill the women in their lives or they do kill the women in their lives or the women in their lives push them to kill other people. So, right, right. I mean, it, the, the theme for Hitchcock as well as Poe, both of them have that fixation of, you know, the death of a beautiful woman is the most poetical mm -hmm. thing in the world. And, you know, again, I think more women died in Poe stories than Alfred Hitchcock had you know, die on film, but yeah. it's definitely a common theme. And, you know, Jeannie and I were also talking about this before we started our episode yeah. tonight, you know, the, there's the Hitchcock blonde, you know, that, you know, iconic, oh, yes. you know, cold, crisp blonde. And, you know, from that time and era when the movies, you know, became in color, being a blonde actress, you know, was very prominent. But yep. when you think about Poe's women, most of them, not all, but the majority of them were more brunettes. So it's kind of like Hitchcock blonde, Poe brunettes. And so yeah. it's just kind of an interesting little fun little thing to think about. But it also, like we also were talking about, since his was film industry. Right. And that was who was making the big splash where the film or the blonde bombshells. Yeah. Marilyn Monroe is the major icon with the seven year, seven, seven year, seven year itch. But you also had, you also had the dark haired ones because you did have Natalie. Um, Wood. Yeah. You know, Wood. Yeah. Hey, that's my mom's maiden name. So how did I forget that? Okay. That's okay. Well, but also Wood and Julie Andrews and those types. Yeah. Um, like in the birds, you have Suzanne Plachette, which mm -hmm. is the opposite, you know, female from Tippi Hedren. Right. But you also, in those movies, you can see that even between the difference with the blonde and the brunette, the actual happenings are different. Right. Their characters are doing is different and yeah. how being portrayed is different. So it just seems that there's like these parallels in one way, but then there's this total flipping of the universe type of thing on your. It's kids. the it's really the antithesis of some of the things. It's not everything, exactly. but it, it's just, it's kind of really cool. And mm -hmm. so. Some of the things that um, I was reading about in the articles I found and, you know, some things from the book. But when you think about another way Poe might have influenced Hitchcock, but also um, just, you know, them both being the creatives that they were. Yeah. Hitchcock always 
you know, in most of his films, he had a little tiny cameo where he would pop in, you know, and some are right. more obvious than others. Um, some you have to really look and that's kind of the fun mm -hmm. little puzzle thing. But when you think about what Poe did, you know, obviously he can't make a cameo in his own book, you know, as mm -hmm. Mr. Poe or Edgar, Eddie, you know, however you want to refer to him. Right. But his writing, he actually really kind of wrote his own reflective self in all of his tales and poems. Mm -hmm. And so that kind of, you could kind of say that's his cameo in his own writing. Yeah. And then we could even go a step further saying that with the narrator. Could have exactly. Been yes. In his own books and stuff. So, and yeah. Okay, I got to throw it into more things when we're talking about cameos and movies. Mm -hmm. Stan Lee was the main man on doing cameos in his big movies. And I think he may have stepped into that because of Hitchcock. Hitchcock. Yeah. Yes. Because, hey, you know, this is my movie. So why, why don't I get to have a visual in here instead of just being behind the scenes? Oh, yeah. The six degrees of separation. I mean, just thinking exactly. about all the things that you you know, mm -hmm. mimic or, you know, copy mm -hmm. or whatever. <clears throat> it's like, oh, that's cool. cool. I'm going to try that too. Exactly. And one of the other things that people have made mention is that Hitchcock uh, also can be popularly known as the master of the macabre. Right. Because, and especially the master of the wrong man thriller. Yeah. You know, about the wrong man being, you know, the accused being, the one that's being chased and all this kind of stuff. And he's got that evidenced in some of his early works. Yeah. Well, a lot of works. I mean, North <laughs> West yeah. and I mean, we could probably go on and on and on. Yes. So there's so many things about Hitchcock that he took on <clears throat> his plate, but he had more, in my opinion, he had more of a play area. Yeah. Than, because so he was, you know, even though he was still sticking with movies, he wasn't doing the writing. He was just doing the choice of what yeah. he put up. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Um, and one of the other things, especially like, especially since we are focusing on horror, the, you know, because of mm -hmm. Poe's horror, Hitchcock's horror, because not everything was, you know, Hitchcock did a whole lot of movies that were about espionage and spies and things like that, because that was the nature of what was going on in the world. You know, and you can kind of, I'm not going on this route, but I'm going to mention it before I mention what I'm about to, but Poe wrote about things in the world at his time. Hitchcock made the films kind of the same way, but they both with their building of their suspense in the writing and in the film, if it's something that had the gore, you know, it should like, you know, if you, these slasher movies that are full of gore, they lacked it. They hid it because mm -hmm. it was let's allow the reader or the observer, the viewer to interpret that for themselves. And that to me is some of the best horror when it's that psychological piece. Exactly. And psycho that's the good one. That's the word I was going to bring up if we hadn't said anything about it. Yeah. Yeah. Psychological aspect of it because yeah. we discussed about how Poe is very much a psychology psychological writer, in my opinion. Yeah, and all his work. So it's like 
why not bring in Hitchcock and his love of the psychological aspect of yes people do and how they do it and all of that. So yeah, I think it's very much um, prominent in Hitchcock's work because whether it's the psychosexual power play, right, or if it's just the psychological personalities. I mean, take for instance, good old Norman Bates. Oh yeah, man, he had the Oedipus complex way out on the left field. <laughs> mm-hmm. So he took it to the next level. Well, He's- and his story, you know, comes kind of, you know, mainly from Ed Gein and the book mm-hmm. by Robert Block about that. Right. Yeah, but just the imagination of taking now. I, I don't have a problem with screenwriters at all. Yeah, yeah. I don't have a problem with that. But I do have some issues with some that take too much creative license. Yes, I agree. I totally they take agree. away from the original <clears throat> book thing. Because then we can we can fall into the whole Edgar Allan Poe and how they've recreated some of his stories. Right, right. I, I think it's very interesting that... Hitchcock never took any of Poe's works and redid them, even though he had that macabre and he had that horror and that psychological thrill. Yeah, it's it's quite interesting. But then, you know, this kind of brings us kind of to some one of the things that we're going to talk about as well. Mm-hmm. He didn't fully say this is the story of, you know, the Telltale Heart. But right. when you look at several of the elements in many of Hitchcock's movies, you can find Poe elements. I mean, they're, oh, they're staring right at you. <clears throat> absolutely. I mean, come on. You can think about the birds. Hell, that's the raven. I mean, right. birds are the major aspects of it, in my opinion. And then you've got um, Vertigo. And that's the story of Lygia. I mean. Exactly. I mean, that's Lygia's story. So he did use, in my opinion, a lot of uh, Poe story overtures. Right. In his works. When he, even though he was taking it from other people's writings, you can't tell me that he didn't somewhat interpret it his own. Yeah. You know, with some. Poe influence, in my opinion. I I agree, because, I mean, when you think of Lygia, you know, the narrator is obsessed with her. Scotty, Mm -hmm. the retired, you know, because he got hurt, you know, police officer. Yep. He was obsessed with Madeline when um, Elster asked him to follow her. And then she died. Lygia died. And then Mm -hmm. Rowena comes along and then Judy comes along in the, in the film Vertigo and they both in a way want, you know, want to do this recreation of Lygia versus Madeline. And so it's, it's eerie when you think about it. And I had never really thought about this until doing this research. And so I'm like, Mm -hmm. how did I miss this? Well, it, it also just goes back to the thing that sometimes you miss things because your brain looks over them because yeah. it makes the connection. So you don't really bring it out and look at it and say, right. oh, well, until something like this, you ask a question and you're going, huh, 
now I realize that, you know. Right. And, and again, I think I've mentioned this on Poe Unplugged multiple times. When I mm-hmm. read with purpose and I watch with purpose, I pick up so much more than if I'm just doing it for pleasure, you know. Right. Yeah. And that, I mean, that's the thing. When we read for pleasure, we're just doing that. We're reading for the pleasure that it gives us, both right. on a mental, a physical, and a an emotional level, and in some yeah. ways, spiritual level. Yeah, yeah. Um, the other thing, and this ties also into uh, Vertigo, as well as Lygia, mm-hmm. Poe and Hitchcock also did something else that in several stories and uh, films where you've got the dual personalities. And so like Vertigo, right. you know, the Judy Madeline, Ligia mm-hmm. Rowena, but then you've also got William Wilson and the fall of the house of Usher. You've got, you know, the two William Wilsons, you've got the fall of the house of Usher with the twins, Roderick and Madeline mm-hmm. um, shadow of a doubt. One of uh, Hitchcock's great films with Joseph Cotton You've got the two Charlies. He's Uncle Charlie and then his niece, Charlie. And she, they're very much alike in in a weird way, but but the polar opposite. And Charlie, the girl, had to do something at the end. I'm not going to give spoilers away. To overcome the evil so she wouldn't turn into her uncle, you know. And then Strangers on a Train. I love that one. Guy and Bruno. You've got the opposite, you know, the antithesis of each other. And so it's just very interesting that that duality theme going on. Yeah. And I mean, these all, I mean, every one of Hitchcock's recreations, we might as well just call them recreations since he's the one that's doing the writing. Yeah. Creation or interpretation of someone else's work is very prominent. And you can see there's all these different influences that he's not only getting from probably showing from his own point of view, but he's taking these writers and you can see the influence that the writers had in their stories. Yeah. It'd be kind of interesting to go back and look at the writers and see about who they got influenced by. Yes, it really would. That came about because, you know, it goes all the way back that six degrees. Yeah. You can't tell me that they weren't influenced by some of the greatest before them. Yeah. Influenced by the greatest before them. So it all kind of ties back to good old, uh, you know, Edgar Allan Poe. It, It definitely does. And, you know, you also think too, like we're not even really touching on, you know, the Alfred Hitchcock presents or the Alfred Hitchcock hour. There right. were, you know, there were two, two creations of the, his TV show that he did. Um, and so, but we're not even really touching on that, but I know there are several episodes. I've watched the series multiple times. The last time I watched it, I was actually looking for Poe connections mm-hmm. and I can't remember all the different episodes, but there's some, a lot of elements in there of Poe stories, but not written by Poe, you know. Right. And that's the thing. If they're alluding to yeah. or, or alluding to an author, if that can make that connection for you, that just makes it that much better. And just like I was looking at Spellbound, that's one thing that we haven't talked about. We talked about Vertigo, we talked about the birds, 
rear window, psycho, but spellbound. Oh yeah, that's such a good one. one because yeah. spellbound actually got um, Salvador Dali involved with that. I think that was the okay. movie that Salvador Dali worked with Alfred Hitchcock on. Yes, yes, and we talked about that in our yes. episode about Dali. Exactly, <laughs> realism. Yeah, so the the plot um, <clears throat> is ludicrous in its own way, but it is a psychological drama. Yes, absolutely. But, but it's one of those to where you're sitting back going, huh, okay. Yeah, <laughs> and this this brings me to something um, that ties in perfectly with another thing that I found in the, my research is mm-hmm. several people kind of said that both of them – have what you would call like produce, I should say the dreamlike state of the unnatural world. And for the film part of it, um, it's really called, they call them blots stains on the natural order that disturb the narrator to get violently and irrationally. And so, um, one of the things that, um, kind of some examples of this was like, Telltale heart, you have the eye and the beating heart. The birds, mm-hmm. you have the birds themselves. It's these are things un, in the unnatural order which cause chaos and bring about these stories. And so I thought that mm-hmm. was a really interesting way to think about both of them and how they created their mediums. Right. And I mean, it's very true. They they have these creative aspects to them that were beyond their time, in my opinion. Yeah. They brought out something that people were either scared to do or had never thought about doing. But also if we think, if we bring in the psychoanalytical parts of it and the surrealist part of it, we can also think about during that time frame who was getting very popular the one major man that was very popular in the psychological world at that time was Sigmund Freud. Right, absolutely. And, you know, speaking of Spellbound, the older gentleman that plays the psychiatrist that Ingrid Bergman's character, like she, that's her mentor. Mm-hmm. He, he reminds me of somebody like Freud. Oh, absolutely. And you can definitely see the <laughs> that Hitchcock was playing with with that so yeah um I mean oh, I agree because you had Carl Jung you had um all the greats that were coming out B.F. Skinner with his behavioral analysis all that was happening during that yeah. time so absolutely he was playing into the time frame yeah he definitely was um and another thing that Hitchcock is very very uh popular for was the MacGuffin and, you know, those things that are kind of in plain sight and that distract you from the real thing going on. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, but one MacGuffin that's probably one of the best ones that he ever did was in North by Northwest. You know, they're looking for George Kaplan, but he, he's not, he doesn't exist. Oops, right. I sh- oh, I should have said spoiler. I hope. Ooh, sorry. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> Whoopsie. <laughs> Oops. Okay. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. <laughs> yeah. And then, you know, for Poe, he used MacGuffins too. And I don't, I didn't trace the, the history of the word MacGuffin. We probably could look that up, 
but there is one very much in post tale that was um, a C. Auguste Dupin story, The Purloined Letter. I'm not going to give away what it is if you haven't read it, so we'll keep that a secret. Oh, yes. We don't want to give too much away because we've already been <clears throat> willing a few things. Right, right. Okay, so the definition, just so you want this. Okay, nice. Glad you looked it up. A MacGuffin is a plot device used in films or books that sets the characters into motion and drives the story. It's mm -hmm. an idea, person, or goal that the characters are either in pursuit of or which serves as motivation for their actions. Usually the MacGuffin is revealed in the first act. Yes, and it it's such a distraction that it really takes away from what the real plot is going on. You yeah, know. it's kind of like the red herring. It, it is in a in a different way. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, even <clears throat> Miriam Webster's dictionary definition. Yeah. That Alfred Hitchcock was the very first person to use the MacGuffin as a word for a plot device. Yeah. From an old shaggy dog story. Oh, interesting. In which some passengers on a train interrogate a fellow passenger carrying a large, strange looking package. The fellow says the package contains a MacGuffin, which he explains is used to catch tigers in the Scottish Highlands. Who knew tigers were in the Scottish Highlands, first of all? Yeah. <laughs> but MacGuffin's got to be Scottish. Exactly. So when the group protests that there are no tigers in the Highlands, see, the passenger replies, well, then this must not be a MacGuffin. Hitchcock apparently appreciated the way the mysterious package holds the audience's attention and builds suspense. And he recognized that an audience anticipating a solution to a mystery will continue to follow the story, even if the initial interest grabber turns out to be irrelevant. So there you go, people. That's more new about a whole MacGuffin. No, it's oh, not yeah. a McGriddle that you get at McDonald's or. No. <laughs> that. So just in case you were wondering. Oh, my goodness. But um, it does make sense because MacGuffin has that Scottish-Irish tendency there. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, a lot of people will get lost if they're looking at um, or watching mystery shows and stuff like that. Sometimes that red herring or that MacGuffin yeah. will take so much interest that people will miss everything else that's going on or they'll stay so fixated that they just can't give it up. Yeah. Absolutely. That Poe had possibly used. Oh yeah. And I mean just never the, paid the, any attention to it. Yeah. I mean the one that that is very obvious, like I said, is in the Purloin letter. And you know which mm -hmm. one I'm talking about, but I don't oh, want yes. to give it away because it would give away the entire story. Right. <clears throat> But, you know, if we, we could probably sit here and think and analyze that for hours, but yeah. we, we need to keep honed in, Jeannie. Yes. Well, you know, you got the start on the MacGuffin there. So, you know. Well, the, hey, that would be something that we, you could do in Time Talks with Jeannie. That's true. That's Pose MacGuffins. That's right. Like there that. you go. There it's you go. There, there's a there's an episode down the road. Down the road, yeah. Because not right now. Down the road. <clears throat> yeah, we'll have to. I'm going to write that down so we don't forget. 
Um, but, talks with the MacGuffin. Yeah. <laughs> um, but the, you know, just kind of looking also at some of the other things with Hitchcock, we're kind of, kind of broke away from his bi biography mm -hmm. and digressed a little. And that's okay. Cause that's what we do. But yeah. his first color film was rope. And one thing I want to point out about rope and, you know, that doesn't really necessarily have anything to do with Poe, but Hitchcock filmed that in two scenes. Basically when you right. see the editing, it's, it was almost like a, play that was filmed but beautifully done and that's to me why that movie is so good because mm -hmm. it's just it's so different than other films it very much so is i mean there's just so many things that when you find a film that just attacks attaches to you yeah that you won't ever forget it because you always keep coming back to it it's it's like those movies you could watch numerous times over and over again. And even though you know what's coming and you know what's going to happen, yeah, very much involved because yeah. that's <clears throat> that riveting. Yeah, and I don't want to give away too much about that film, but you know, there's definitely some essence of Poe in there um, with mm -hmm. the what the rope was used for and things like that. Right. But again, not giving too much away. Um, but Hitchcock also, um, he won two Golden Globes, um, mm -hmm. some more um, awards, you know, given out in England as well. Um, five Lifetime Achievement Awards. He won five uh, or he was nominated five times for an Academy Award for Best right. Director in 1940. And then Rebecca won the Oscar for Best Picture. Um, I think that was actually in 1940. And yeah. then this is really cool. And I don't know that I, if I realize this or not, because nobody refers to him as this. In 1980, Queen Elizabeth II gave him a knighthood. She knighted him. Wow. Did you know that? No. I never know he got knighted. Yeah, the, which makes sense. Some of them use sirs, you know, in their names. Right. I don't remember Alfred referring to himself as Sir Alfred Hitchcock. Yeah. he. I, I never, you know, because, mm -hmm. you know, he died April 29th, 1980. I don't right. remember him ever being referenced, you know, because we were old mm -hmm. enough to remember that, you know. Yeah. Well, let's not say that too loud. Too loud. <clears throat> oh, no, it's all right. But... <laughs> True. Yeah, so yeah. he he must have been knighted decently early in 1980 with him passing away in April. So true. And that may be why that they've not used it as a you know a as, yeah yeah a salutation or what do they call them like a salutation? Yeah, I think it's, it might be a salutation. Yeah, but. yeah. There's so many different things, you know, because it's like English <clears throat> oh, language. Yeah. You got five million things you can call one thing. Yeah, and and again, the, I'm going to also mention something else um, that you know we're we're mainly talking about Poe's horror, Hitchcock's horror, because you know both of mm -hmm. them Poe's horror is not as much as what Hitchcock did, but right. Poe had you know more satire stories than Hitchcock had satirical films, but 
I just want to point out, you know, his own Hitchcock's only comedy was Mr. and Mrs. Smith. And it's got Carol Lombard. And if you have not seen that film, it is fantastic. So, you know, Hitchcock was a funny guy, um, you know, off the set and that kind of thing, which Poe was too. And another dark satire um, that Hitchcock did was The Trouble with Harry. And it's great. It's, you know, John Forsyth, Shirley MacLaine, Edwin Gwynn. It is fantastic. And the little boy is Leave It to Beaver. It's Beaver. And what's his name? What's the actor's name? I don't know. I can't. It's one of those where you know who that you can see him perfectly, but you can't ever remember his name. Yeah. Like Eddie. I can't ever remember who Eddie's real name is, but I remember who Eddie is. Yeah. Well, his mom was Barbara Billingsley and Hugh Beaumont was the father. I just... For whatever reason, it's gone out of my brain tonight. Uh, well, yeah. <clears throat> so uh, that's just another. Look it up. That's another little commonality between Poe and Hitchcock. Was mm-hmm. you know they they were funny men. Yes, they were. They, they but they and I have to bring this in, and we're not going to de- delve too far into it, especially right. Hitchcock. Yeah, they had their vices that were very not appreciated in some circles. Right. Yeah. With Hitchcock. Yeah. Yeah. You know, because he hit, you know, Poe, he had his vice of alcoholism, you know, but that was about his major things. But, you know, we've talked about his tragic lives and stuff. But with Hitchcock, he had some vices that were actually, it was seen later, like in his career kind of thing, not the beginning. So very, very true. And, and, you know, and we know that Poe's alcoholism is excessively exaggerated. Mm -hmm. You know, he was not a drunkard his entire life or his adult life. And so that's, that's one thing, you know, I always like to remind everybody that he had, you know, times where, you know, he did drink, but it was not, to the excess because he did have, you know, they, there's no way to prove it now, but it was some kind of like either allergy or sensitivity to alcohol. And so one drink would make him maybe look more inebriated than somebody that would drink, you know, a whole bottle of wine or two bottles of wine or something excessive like that. Right. And you actually have to look into that time period. Yeah. They were creating their uh, drink, right? Much stronger and a whole lot to, yeah, less, uh, regulated than we have to deal with today. Yeah. Oh, I know. <clears throat> uh, but yeah, I just wanted to bring in that that was some of the similarities that they had. Yeah. Oh, they, yeah. Um, had their own demons in their yeah. own that they had to put up with, and which, if you look at it, that's part of the creativity activity life in some instances that those that are touched with tragedy or anything dealing with that for their creative avenue right usually has center stage in their creations yeah i agree so and that's even though like we said hitchcock did not write any of his you know movies Right. 
used, and I think he chose some of his works based on his own life. Yeah. I think that's interesting. Very interesting. Oh, I, I know. Well, I think we have really captured the connections between Poe and Hitchcock and influences Poe had on him, on, on the master of suspense. Right. And how they, they have uh, touched lives in both of their mediums, whether it be through uh, writings or portrayals in movies, they had mediums that were well received. Yeah. Absolutely. And we have to pay homage to both Poe and Hitchcock. Poe for being the father of the detective story, but also he was um, he was a person of the macabre and would bring in his horror aspects to things. Yeah. He brought it into stories where Hitchcock brought it into film. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I mean, Poe was kind of the master of the macabre and Hitchcock mm-hmm. master of, of suspense. And can you imagine them working together? Wow. I can. And that's why I said, I don't, I don't, I don't understand why Hitchcock never took one of Poe's stories and made a movie. Yeah. And one thing I'm going to have to do, because there is one episode of, Alfred Hitchcock presents that mm-hmm. Poe, like Poe is mentioned in it. I can't remember off the top of my head. It's toward the end of the end of the run of his series. But I, I really would like to go through and see who, where the inspiration for some of these stories, you know, came from, because, you know, I think it's Richard Matheson wrote several mm-hmm. of the screenplays for the, or well, the the writing piece for the TV show, I think Robert Block did too. I know he did Twilight Zone. Right. So, <clears throat> but you know, some great writers, you know, on Alfred Hitchcock presents, and so yeah, I would love to go through. I have a book up on the shelf. I'm looking at it right now that I believe does show some of the episodes and like the ins and outs of, you know, some of them. And so we'll just have to dig Janie. Yeah, we will. And I'm thinking that I think I actually have Alfred Hitchcock presents uh, over there in my AV cabinet. Okay. Remember if I've kept it or I got rid of it. So we'll we'll probably have to. You can, you can find it on streaming channels pretty regularly. Yeah. And so every couple of years I watch the whole thing, you know, binge and everything else while I'm sewing, I'll watch it and you cannot go wrong. (laughs) Nope. Nope. Can't go wrong with Alfred Hitchcock. I mean, that's just, just like you can't go wrong with Edgar Allan Poe. No, not, not at all. Two of the geniuses of horror and other things as well. Exactly. The two fathers of them all. Both yep. in the written word and in the visual word, in my, you know, and exactly yes, visual word because body language is very visual. Absolutely. All right. So, I think on that aspect of it, we can say we are. Oh, out, out. <laughs> A wailing shriek, half of horror and half of triumph, such as might have arisen only out of hell. 
conjointly from the throats of the damned in their agony and of the demons that exult in the damnation.